Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Paul Bleakley to discuss his book, Under a Bad Sun, Police, Politics, and Corruption in Australia. Thanks for tuning in. In Under a Bad Sun, Police, Politics, and Corruption in Australia, my guest Paul Bleakley asks, why do police officers turn against the people they're hired to protect? A question that remains urgent in the wake of recent global protests against police brutality. As a historical criminologist, Bleakley addresses this question by examining an intersecting series of cases of police corruption in Queensland, Australia. The protection and extortion of illegal gambling operators and sex workers were only the most visible features of a decades-long, pervasive culture of corruption in the state's law enforcement agency. Even more dangerous and far harder to prosecute was a corrupt bargain between the police and the state's conservative government, which gave law enforcement free reign to profit from criminalized vice in return for supporting the government's repression and persecution of its political enemies, such as punk music fans, gay men, and left-wing protesters. While intimidating members of the political opposition, the police also protected friends and allies from criminal prosecution, even for offenses as serious as child sex abuse. When journalists and investigators revealed this corruption bargain in 1987, the premier was forced from office and the police commissioner went to prison. But untangling politics from policing proved, and continues to prove, far more difficult in societies around the world. This true crime story goes beyond the everyday violations of law and ethics to underscore the centrality of honest, equitable policing to a truly democratic society. Paul Bleakey is a historical criminologist and former journalist from the Gold Coast, Queensland. He's currently assistant professor in criminal justice at the University of New Haven in Connecticut, where he teaches a variety of courses focused on policing and theories of criminal behavior. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me, Kurt. I'm looking forward to discussing the book with you. Yeah, me too. I think before we get deep into the subject of the book, we should do a little bit of scene setting for listeners. And I wonder if we could start that by just talking a bit about your general sort of area of research. Could you tell us a little bit about what it means to be a historical criminologist and what kind of work that entails? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is a really good question to to kick things off with because historical criminology in the, uh, shall we say, the spectrum of criminological approaches is something that is interesting in the sense that it is not at all new, but it is developing into a new sort of subfield or approach. And what I mean by that is this, so much of criminology and so much of criminal justice is dependent on the past, right? Our understanding of how we got to where we are today, the institutions we have today is all based on what came before and how we've responded to change over time. And so history has always really been at the the core of criminology, but it's only sort of in the last decade or so that historical criminology as a sort of separate approach has really started to emerge. And what it is, you know, as we conceive of it, is really this understanding of the importance of what some call embodied time, right? And to put that in really simple terms, what that means is the fact that time matters. 
when we're talking about crime and justice. That could be how it matters in terms of how different periods of time result in different uh, approaches and perspectives on crime and justice, how that can have an impact on who is seen as quote unquote criminal and who is not, uh, and also how time and context changes as history goes on. I always like to talk about the fact that, you know, we take for granted that police are a factor in our criminal justice system. You know, they're ubiquitous in our contemporary criminal justice system. When the truth of the matter is that, at least in the, in the, in the British world, the first sort of organised modern state police force only came about in 1829. And that is, you know, a long time ago, but in the span of human history, it's, you know, a few moments ago. And so historical criminology really allows us to interrogate these, these ideas and, and realise that once we engage with history, we can understand a lot more about who we are, where we are and where we've come from. You know, it's really interesting that you point back to the origin of policing in the 19th century and the kind of codification around the idea of the police as a state force and that they are responsible for certain kinds of things and not others. I was wondering about not necessarily the role of evidence, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about the way that you go about constructing that context or understanding the context of history when you look at the law or criminal justice. How does the historian of criminology approach kind of the available evidence in the archive and what do you look for to put together your picture of the past? I think what the historian or the historical criminologist might pick out as a critique of some criminology, and this isn't just a a factor in criminology, this is across the board in a lot of more present-oriented academic subjects, but the historical criminologist might point out the lack of broad scope in, in some more presentist criminology, you know, the lack of an understanding of context. And I think that's the key thing as we approach the archives from a historical criminologist standpoint. It's an understanding that, yes, we are going in to look for information on policing, but it's also an understanding that there is a much broader social context that we have to be aware of, a much broader historical and cultural context that we have to be aware of. Because From a historical standpoint, things like the criminal justice system don't exist in a vacuum, right? And we can find a lot of important linchpin information from the archives when we start to look beyond the police files, right? Instead of going in and saying, okay, well, let's just have a look at what the police were saying. We go in and say, well, let's have a look at what correspondence was being sent to different politicians, different Congress people at the time to, you know, complain about police behaviours what was being said by people in the Department of Children's Services uh, about their interactions and their uh, relationship working with police. So from a historical methodology, we can start to, you know, take a broader look, take a sort of bird's eye approach to events and start to see how all of these different factors interplay with each other uh, within the archives. You know, the archives allows us to, uh, or gives us fuel for this narrative. And uh, it's just about taking a, a broader approach and, and understanding that you might not necessarily find what you're looking for with a more myopic approach to the archival process. It's really interesting. And I'd like to turn closer to the book now, because I think the book serves as such a good example of the kinds of work that you're talking about. And I'm especially thinking about you know that 
interest in having different perspectives and the way that different narratives emerge and you start to find out, like to uncover the truth of an event, you end up having to put together these different conflicting narratives that then reveal something much more pervasive is going on. Since, you know, a lot of listeners are probably going to be pretty unfamiliar with the history we're talking about, could you give us just a sort of capsule history of the context? The book it takes place in Queensland. It's in the sort of late 20th century. What was the culture and political sphere like in Australia and in Queensland specifically in the 1970s and 80s? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a really important question. Uh, it was actually, it struck me only a few months ago, sort of after the book had come out, that um, this is a really important time to, to learn about Queensland. And I know it sounds very strange because, you know, Queensland is a state in Australia that, you know, it doesn't have a great amount of relevance to a lot of people, I think, in, in many respects. But not long after the book was released, Queensland and the, the city of Brisbane, the capital city, where a lot of the action in this book is focused, actually won the rights to, uh, to the 2032 Olympics. And so what we have is a situation here where the city of Brisbane, this kind of almost anonymous place in the world, has now been elevated in the public eye to the level of you know major cities like Los Angeles, Paris, Beijing, right? And yet it is a mystery to a lot of people. And so like, I'm glad you asked this question because I think the context is really important. When it comes to the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, the period that this book mostly focuses on, what we have to remember here is that like most of the world, the state of Queensland was grappling with the aftermath of the Second World War. And I think it's important to note that the state of Queensland, the capital city of Brisbane particularly, felt the social and cultural change of World War II far more profoundly than a lot of other places. The city of Brisbane was during the 1940s the headquarters for General MacArthur's Pacific forces, Pacific Allied forces. And so over the early 1940s, what we saw was about 2 million, would be the estimate, about 2 million American servicemen and women come to Brisbane. Were, be, were based in Brisbane. And that event fundamentally transformed the city. Like so many other places around the world, as we saw after World War II, there was a real appetite to return to normalcy. You know, you kind of think about the stereotypical image of the 1950s, right? That kind of neighborhood, suburbanite return to normal after, you know, the tragedies and horrors of war. And Brisbane was, was much like that as well. You know, it was an attempt from, uh, from government and from the culture at large to get things back to normal, get things back to this conservative suburban lifestyle. However, Brisbane also was grappling with the idea that they had been introduced to the world at large during the time that it served as the headquarters for, for the Allied forces. You know, we, we saw a world where Brisbane became the heart of soldiers R&R. We saw the rise in brothels, the rise in gambling, the rise in, uh, you know, the kind of typical casual sex that didn't exist before in Brisbane, at least not uh, in the public eye. And it was hard for Brisbane to return to normalcy after that. And so when we come to the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, which is the period this book covers, we have a city that is struggling with the conflict between social conservatism, which is what they're being told is the right way to go, and this kind of grassroots underlying desire to return to this kind of exciting, 
edgy, deviant life that it had experienced during World War II. From 1957 on, uh, right up until 1989, Brisbane was governed by one party, one political party. The state of Queensland, I should say, was governed by one political party, the Conservative Country National Party. And so from a political standpoint, that conservatism was being drummed in through legislation and through policing, as I say, uh, not without conflict from the grassroots, which is where a lot of the action of this book takes place. Could you say a little, Paul, about how that ideology manifests in like law and order kinds of practical activities? You said that's being drummed in by le- uh, regulation and policing. What kinds of concrete things was that conservative government trying to do in that period to control the culture of Brisbane and Queensland at large? Yeah, it's a really good question because, uh, you know, there is a laundry list uh, of actions where the police and, and the conservative government really came together to enforce their version of conservatism, you know, right from the jump in the 1960s. Again, much like in the United States and, and indeed around the world. 1960s in Queensland was a was a major period of, of protest, particularly student protest. In fact, one of the local protest groups that gave the police a lot of stress during that time uh, was in part started by former members of the American SDS, right, who would later, you know, have break off into splinter groups like the Weathermen. And so we saw that kind of radical student protest, which became a focus for repressive policing during the era. To the point where in the 1970s, the state actually, well, the state premier, Joe Bielke-Peterson, actually ordered police never to issue a protest permit. The, he said publicly that the day of the street protest was over. Did people still continue to protest? Absolutely, right? But it meant that there was fierce reprisals from police, lots of police brutality in the protest sphere. So we had that as well. On the other hand, there were other groups who were seen as uh, counter to the conservative ideology. We had, for example, you mentioned in the, in the intro, gay men. There were many legislative attempts to, uh, to repress the gay community. Like a lot of places, homosexual acts were criminalised up until 1990 in Queensland. Uh, and so gay men were, were already on the back foot. But we saw acts, legislative acts, uh, like attempts to amend the Liquor Act, you know, the state's, the state's liquor laws to prevent gay men from even entering a licensed premises. Uh, that was part of this uh, movement to instill conservatism by legislation, by policing as well. I mean, even right up to the end of the regime, even uh, as it was crumbling, this conservative regime in the late 1980s, the premier would actually send police, what they, what they would describe in the newspapers as, you know, stormtroopers of police to university campuses to physically, with crowbars, rip out condom vending machines because he felt that it promoted promiscuity. And this is, we're talking here not in the 60s or 70s, we're talking here in 1989, as, as I say, as the regime was sort of coming to an end. So we saw a lot of these kind of legislative acts designed, these political acts designed to instill conservatism. And the police of Queensland were really the tool, you know, the the blunt instrument that was being used by politicians quite willingly, I should say, to enforce this version of normalcy, if you will. And any version of normalcy is going to have to have some kind of 
counter example to play upon, as you point out, gay men, student protesters, the sort of gamut of, you know, left-wing opposition to moral superiority that we see kind of all throughout this period. I wonder if you could talk now a little bit about how the conspiracy between the police and the conservative government starts to unravel by thinking a little bit about that opposition in the form of folks that are actually, you know, engaged in criminal activities. Could you tell us a bit about that and how it plays into the story of Queensland in this period? Yeah, absolutely. And what we've really got here is kind of a reference to what to something you said earlier, the, the corrupt bargain. As I said, the police were sort of used as a blunt instrument at the behest of the of the government. The government used police to enforce, to enforce their conservative agenda. And police were willing to do that during the period, by and large, with some exceptions, of course. But by and large, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, this was something the police were, were quite happy to do. Now, that's one side of the bargain, but every bargain has two sides, right? There has to be some sort of quid pro quo, if you will. And part of the quid pro quo that the government offered to police in Queensland during this period, in return for loyalty, in return for being, uh, you know, almost a political police force of sorts, was a blind eye. You know, carte blanche to, uh, to operate how they see fit, carte blanche to operate without oversight and interference. From politicians who are responsible for, for providing that oversight. Now, where this goes wrong is that from around 1958, we saw the uh, investiture of a new police commissioner, a guy called Frank Bischoff. And Bischoff was elevated to the role of police commissioner largely because he was an outsider. Previous to that, the, uh, the former government had been a Labor government, a Labor political government, uh, which was largely dominated by Irish Catholics. And, and so too was the police force at that time. And so when the Conservative government was, was put into place, they were looking for someone who, unsurprisingly, wasn't Catholic, wasn't an Irish Catholic, wasn't loyal to the previous government. And so they put in Bischoff, who really wasn't next in the line of succession. And really what happened next could have been seen because Bischoff had a reputation for corruption. He had a reputation for standing over and extorting bookmakers for, for money. He had a reputation for fabricating confessions and all this kind of thing. And yet he was elevated to the role of police commissioner and, and brought with him a team of police officers who he personally oversaw. These were people who were given the opportunity to rise in their careers despite being part of this corrupt circle. And in fact, one of his key protégés, a guy called Terry Lewis, would then later go on to become the police commissioner during the 1970s and 80s and ultimately be imprisoned for, uh, for corruption, for taking money in order to protect gambling identities and identities from the sex industry. So when you ask the question, you say, you know, how does the criminal element come into this? Uh, that's the other part of the bargain, Kurt, right? Because on the one hand, police are willing to turn a blind eye uh, in return for loyalty, but what's happening under that blind eye? You know, what what is it that the police are doing with the full knowledge that uh, they have the support of government, no matter what? That's uh, that's really where we where we came to in the seventies and eighties, and how corruption was really allowed to become endemic in the police force. You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Paul Bleakley, author of Under a Bad Sun: Police, Politics, and Corruption in Australia. 
So you're talking about police corruption and what they're willing to turn a blind eye toward. Could you elaborate a little bit? How did this corruption start to come to light? Like what kinds of things were discovered, exposed, um, revealed that that really keyed people into the kind of cooperation, shall we say, between the, the police and the criminal element they were meant to be controlling? I should make a point here to say that even though this wasn't really revealed until, uh, not in its full form anyway, until the 19, late 1980s, there were attempts consistently throughout the 20th century to reveal the corruption that was going on. There were always whistleblowers, whether those whistleblowers were people who had suffered under the hands of corruption, whether these were whistleblowers were honest police officers, of which there were many, uh, whether these whistleblowers were sex workers or gamblers, you know, right? There were always people who were willing to stand up and say, hey, this is not right and this shouldn't be happening. The difference is in Queensland, and what made those attempts unsuccessful was the control that police had over the process and the control that police had over the political process, which, as I said, was supposed to provide that oversight. For example, there's a chapter, an entire chapter in the book, which talks about one attempted inquiry into police corruption as early as 1963 where police were accused of basically running a prostitution ring out of uh, a local city uh, city bar and hotel. And that went to a full inquiry. And the reason that it found no wrongdoing on the part of police was largely because those who were assigned to do the investigating on behalf of the inquiry were actually the people, the very same people who were named as being, you know, potentially corrupt. And so you've got a really situation here, and this is just one example, of the fox being left in charge of the hen house, right? Police investigating corruption that they themselves are being accused of participating in. And this wasn't, you know, a unique situation. This had happened throughout the majority of, of the late 20th century. And then we come to the 1980s. Uh, at this point, the uh, police, the then police commissioner, Terry Lewis, a guy who I mentioned earlier, who was, uh, as I say, later jailed for corruption, he had been in the position for about 10 years. In fact, he had just received a knighthood from the Queen. Uh, so he had become Sir Terence Lewis in recognition of his service. And so this is a guy who's completely at the top of his game. You know, he's a 10-year veteran as commissioner, and he's even had the recognition of, of royalty. And so in many respects, he, he seems untouchable at this point. However, we have an accumulation of factors at this point of various people from various parts of this corrupt network who are starting to come forward and blow the whistle. One of the big ones was a guy called Jim Slade, who had been working as a police officer for some time and who had been the target of an attempted bribe by some members of the criminal underworld uh, in return for changing some of the details in a report that he had issued about the drug trade in Queensland's you know, tropical far north. And Slade took the money and then later went to report you know, this, this attempted bribe from another police officer to his superiors. He got nowhere. Slade himself was transferred, punitively transferred to a sort of inconsequential police station in a rural area. And it was never spoken of again. There were no consequences for the attempt to bribe him. And so Slade did what so many other whistleblowers throughout the history, especially throughout the history of policing, have done. And he went to the press. He went to a journalist, a guy called Chris Masters, and told him everything he knew about corruption. And from there, Masters spent a long time tracking down others who had also uh, experienced the same thing. 
sex workers who could talk about the fact that police would come in to, you know, get freebies and take pick up their paper bag full of cash. People who were in charge of running the sex trade on behalf of various syndicates. Uh, people who were involved in and often frequented the illegal casinos that were protected by police. And so Masters grabbed, you know, a collection of these people and based on that, a documentary essentially went to air on television in 1987 in May. And while he didn't name the police commissioner as, as corrupt necessarily in that documentary, what he did say in the documentary about police corruption and the relationship between police and the underworld was enough to really stir the public and stir the public into action. And the government's hand was forced. They had to call an, an inquiry into this whole event, right, to get to the bottom of it. And in doing so, they selected a person to run the inquiry who was also very much himself an outsider who had no very strong connections to police or politics, this guy Tony Fitzgerald, and this would become the Fitzgerald Inquiry. And Fitzgerald ran a very objective investigation over the course of you know, a few years from 1987 to 1989, in which he really got to the bottom of the corrupt networks. And I should point out one of the key ways that he did that was offering indemnities. He said in quite openly from the start, you know, any corrupt police who came forward to tell everything they knew could get immunity. He was offering immunity in return for testimony. And sure enough, you know, one after the other, the, the formerly corrupt police all the way up to the top all the way up to the top of the administration, came forward. They told their stories. They told everything about how the corruption was organised. They handed over their ledgers with all of the accounting information. And eventually, over time, as this kept going on, the trail led directly back to the top, directly back to Terry Lewis, the police commissioner, and, and saw him put in prison. It's such a fascinating story. And I think that one thing that folks we'll get from your book that we should spend a little bit of time thinking about here is a real serious look at what it means to be corrupt in an organization like that. Like, it, I think it's easy for us, you know, reared on a diet of crime movies and law and order kinds of TV shows to have this sort of image of corruption where we imagine kind of nefarious actors, you know, making shady backroom deals and exchanging huge piles of money, you know, threatening to kill people and those kinds of things. But you make a real interesting point that there's a lot more subtle kinds of corruption and a lot of different kinds of things going on that contribute to the kind of longstanding relationship that you're describing, where the whole force is doing something or other to facilitate the goings on. One of the words that you use for this is process corruption. I wonder if you could maybe define that or just talk about how you approach corruption more generally so we can kind of get a sense of, you know, how this really became a systemic issue and wasn't just the fault of, you know, a couple of bad folks, you know, pursuing their own self-interest. You know, this is something that when I first started down this path many, many years ago, you know, one of the first documents I read was the, the report of the Fitzgerald Inquiry which is really quite a, a seminal piece. And there was a, a phrase or a passage that, that stood out to me when I read that, which really set me on, off on this, uh, on this kind of uh, adventure. And Fitzgerald made it very clear that although a lot of the media focus, a lot of the attention was inevitably going to go towards the kind of traditional, what I like to call brown bag corruption, which is, you know, the, what you described, the idea of police, you know, 
walking into a casino or a brothel or somewhere like that, taking a bag of money and turning a blind eye to everything that's going on. That's like you say, that's the media, that's the popular culture representation. That's what we, what we grow up with. But what I found interesting when I read this document was that Fitzgerald was very clear that that was the far less common version of corruption. And what he said was the more common was this process corruption, this idea that police had great powers and that where there was no oversight, those powers could be used for a variety of purposes. For example, Fitzgerald said that the far more common or pervasive type of corruption was the type of corruption where police would simply cut corners to get their job done. Some people in the literature might call it uh, noble cause corruption, right, or the Dirty Harry dilemma, the idea that sometimes police feel strangled by process. Police feel that going through the right channels is not necessarily going to bring justice and so do the wrong thing in the course of their profession, whether that is fabricating a confession, whether that is planting evidence, whether that's the use of excessive force, any number of different ways that police power can be misused in order to do what nominally is their job, which is to keep the streets safe, bring the bad guys, quote unquote, to justice. And Fitzgerald said this was not just commonplace in the Queensland police force, but indeed pervasive. This was the norm. And there's a lot to be said there in terms of, again, going back to that corrupt bargain we spoke about earlier. Because when we're turning to police operating on behalf of, in many, many ways, a political agenda, as they were through, through the period, we're talking here about politicians not just turning a blind eye to brown bag corruption, the protection of the underworld, but also in many ways explicitly endorsing process corruption so long as it suits the political agenda. I'll give you one, one sort of example from the book. In 1971, the South African Springboks rugby union team were, were due to tour Queensland and Brisbane specifically. And of course, anyone who's uh, sort of familiar with the history will be aware that this was during the time of apartheid in South Africa, and the Springboks team were a real focus for anti-apartheid, anti-racist protest, as the, and as they were in Brisbane. Knowing this in advance, the Premier went out and not only did he bring in police from all over the state to focus in on Brisbane, but he made an, an open statement and he gave a green light. He said, police have carte blanche to use whatever means necessary to ensure that the rugby union matches went ahead and that uh, the protests were repressed violently if needed and that he made the commitment that nobody would be punished for anything they did in trying to do that. So when I say that the government and politicians sometimes explicitly endorse process corruption, things like excessive force. That's a very good example, a very clear example of that happening. And just to, to add to that, just really quickly, you know, this is not something that is resigned to the books of history either. You know, if we look back to the summer of 2020 here in the States, uh, we might be able to see several other examples of, of very similar things taking place, right? Carte blanche being given to law enforcement or the military in order to repress protest by any means necessary. And when we enter into that, we start to see a lot of reflections of the past, I think. 
I'm happy you brought it up to the present moment because it, it, it would be a mistake not to emphasize how much the book can tell us about these issues that we're dealing with right at the present. You know, it's easy to kind of imagine that it's compartmentalized into Queensland in the 1980s, but really it's representative of a culture that spreads pretty far and wide. I wonder as we start getting a little more abstract, if you could talk a little bit about how what you call the Blue Brotherhood helped perpetuate that culture um, in Queensland and, and maybe whether it continues to do so here in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's really important and key to point out that in many respects, corruption is a cultural malfunction, if you will, a cultural dysfunction. And this is the case of the Blue Brotherhood, certainly in Queensland at the time. We had a situation in Queensland where from at least the late 1950s, I say at least the late 1950s, because that's where the book sort of covers and picks up. But throughout that time where not only was corruption tolerated, but those who committed corrupt acts, particularly process corruption, were rewarded with promotions, with being put in positions of influence and, and power, with being put in position to decide which police officers got the best jobs, which police officers were rewarded, which police officers were, to the contrary, forced out. And in that kind of context, you can really start to understand how corruption, process corruption became so pervasive, right? Because when the guy at the top is known throughout the police force already as having for decades been involved or at least complicit in corrupt activities, then where's the cultural stigma? Where's the cultural sanction against other police participating in that? You know, as the old saying goes, the fish rots from the head, right? But yeah, the Blue Brotherhood in Queensland also had the effect as well of bringing in a more closed community. Because the fact of the matter is that where corruption is endemic in a police force, as it was in Queensland, the people who commit it are still, by and large, a minority, especially the people who commit the kind of corruption that we would you know, stereotypically see as brown bag corruption, taking money to protect illegal gambling, prostitution, etc., the far greater majority is the people that know all about it, but don't speak out, who remain silent, that code of silence that is so key to the Blue Brotherhood. And that is inherently based on cultural factors, right? And they're cultural factors that we see still permeating the profession of policing to this day. The idea that to speak out against one of your brothers, right, one of the Blue Brothers amongst uh, the police force, another person in uniform, is to be disloyal, is to be untrustworthy. And there's a big breadth of research, right, that points out that policing in many respects, the, the culture of policing is much like the culture of a family, that there's this expectation of loyalty, of blind loyalty to your fellow officers. These are people who you're going to have to trust to have your back in a dangerous situation. And so if they can't have your back in a situation where you might be taking a little bit of money on the side, no one's getting hurt. How can you trust them anywhere else? And that's a key part of the Blue Brotherhood and this code of silence, this idea that anybody who goes against the grain, anybody who speaks out against the flow uh, needs to be excised. They need to be removed. They need to be marginalized. And so this is a huge repressing effect on whistleblowing. And that was, that was key to Queensland at the time. And, you know, as the research says in the contemporary, it remains the key to combating corruption 
in the police force is to is to get through this this blue brotherhood, this silence, and to encourage people who know that the wrong thing is happening and may not approve of it to encourage those people to speak out, which which typically doesn't happen through fear of retribution or or ostracization. I wonder too, and this is really more to complicate things further and ask you to to think about kind of another large issue. But I do wonder too, if part of the unwillingness to break the bond of the brotherhood and, and speak out about corruption isn't also to do with one of the other sticky issues that you raise in the book, which is, you know, if you're part of a culture where the ostracization of gay men is maybe not quite enshrined in law, but like certainly a loud facet of the dominant culture. And and we're trying hard to enshrine it in law by banning condom machines or by excluding people from bars. If the force takes it as part of their job to enforce that culture, and that's seen as representative of the will of the people, like how, how does one reconfigure you know, the relationship to the police and the people and the law in such a way as to make that more complicated or to like really lean on you know, whatever we take to be the moral good in a situation where the law and the culture is maybe encouraging the force to do things that, that we find you know, here and then reprehensible. Yeah, look, that's a great point. And this is a discussion I've had with, uh, with certain other people who, who I've talked about uh, the book and the research with. And one of the points that was raised to me at, at one point was, well, look, you're saying there's this corrupt bargain between the government and the police, but if the government is, is elected by the people and the government makes these laws that then the police carry out, and then how is this corruption, right? If the government elected by the people criminalises uh, the gay community and the police then follow through with uh, harassing the gay community as a result of that, People have raised the, the question, is this corruption? And my response, and it might be a little bit trite, might be a little cliche, I don't know. But my response is that, you know, that's a very Nixonian way of looking at things, right? If uh, it's, you know, when, when Nixon went on David Frost's program and basically said that, uh, well, when the president does it, it's, it's not illegal. That's the way that I kind of look at this situation. As you say, it's a complicating and challenging, murky waters, right? This idea that if police and politicians, police and government are in lockstep on these issues, then, hey, maybe it's not corruption. Maybe it's just police enforcing the will of the the government who are indeed elected by the people. But as I say, there is this complicating factor. And it's this factor of the idea of good policing and what that is, the idea of ethical policing and at what point we have to acknowledge that what we're being told to do is, in fact, not the right thing to do. And, you know, I, I don't put this as a cross to bear for the, the regular officer on the street, right? The regular officer on the street is, you know, in a powerful position through his role as a police officer, but, but ultimately within the organisation doesn't have a lot of control over what they're being told to do. So this is, you know, certainly not something that I put on the average street officer to any large extent. But it's definitely a question we have to ask ourselves as a culture. What do we expect from police? Uh, and should we expect more? Do we expect police simply to carry out unquestionably the orders and demands of government? Or do we expect police to approach their job, their very important job of preserving public safety or bringing you know, justice where justice is, is needed? Do we expect more of police? Do we tell ourselves that police are capable 
of a lot more than simply being automatons that follow orders. And that's, that's really a complicated question, certainly, because it goes against a lot of the ideas of policing as a profession that follows the letter of the law strictly and unquestioningly. But I think we've moved beyond that. And I think that there are questions to be asked about whether or not we should expect more than that. I wonder if one way of, of approaching the sort of question of what we do now is to, to draw back onto the history of Queensland and, and ask what changed as a result of the joke kind of coming to light and the exposure of all of this corruption. You said that the police commissioner was ultimately imprisoned. We know that the premier was ousted from office, but what changed culturally in the wake of that? And is there any kind of lessons that we could learn in our own thinking about reforming, dissolving, somehow changing policing in America and and in the world at large? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, look, as I mentioned earlier, the Fitzgerald Inquiry was a public forum in which all of the dirty laundry of the Queensland Police Force, and indeed the Queensland government as well, was put on display for for the state to see. And it wasn't a quick thing, you know. It wasn't like an inquiry that went for a couple of weeks and then that was it, it was over. It went for for two years, you know, in, in, in a public setting. And so the revelations kept coming thick and fast. Now, what that did was, and I think this is the first lesson that we have to learn as well, is the importance of transparency, the importance of not doing things behind closed doors because the effect that transparency had in this case was to end any disillusion that the Queensland public had that, hey, this is just the way things are. This is the way they should always be. It stopped the Queensland public who may have had an idea that this was going on to some capacity, but it stopped allowing them to ignore it. And I think that's a key part and a key function of transparency is to put dirty laundry in front of people's faces to let people see the details, the gritty, grimy, sometimes uncomfortable details of how our democracy works, how our law enforcement system works. And that's that's the first key point. From there, there were, of course, structural reforms as well, which are important. There was an end to several of the really problematic specialist squads the Fitzgerald Inquiry found, particularly in branches of the police force, like the licensing branch, who was responsible for uh, you know policing licensed premises, prostitution, etc., that there were people in that branch who had spent decades of their career there. Why? Not because they really loved the work, not because they really loved the late nights going from club to club, from brothel to brothel, but because they made a lot of money out of it. It became a, a really central focus point for corruption and for corrupt officers. So there was an end brought to some of these specialist squads that were seen as really problematic. There was the introduction of a independent crime and corruption commission, a standing inquiry that was a permanent body that allegations of corruption and complaints against police and politicians could be filtered through. Now, it wasn't without its faults. Fitzgerald, when he recommended creating it, said, hey, this has to be something that's completely independent. In the end, it was staffed by a lot of ex-Queensland police. So we had the same, obviously, uh, issues of, of the fox guarding the hen house once again. So it's not, it's not perfect. Reform is never perfect. But the idea of a standing sort of body who can negotiate, navigate and adjudicate on these complaints was, it was a huge reform. And of course, I think there's also a symbolic power 
Uh, as you mentioned, the, the Premier Joe Bielke Peterson was forced from office after 20 years at the helm, I should say. So this is not just somebody who came in and was in and out. This is someone who for 20 years, for two decades, had been the, the father of Queensland, forced from office, largely in disgrace. But more importantly, I think the fact of seeing the police commissioner, Terry Lewis, convicted and, and sent to prison, I think there's a symbolic value in holding important and powerful people accountable. And I think that there's really something that we can learn from that in the present day. I feel like accountability is something that in our society we both call for and don't see often enough. Not real accountability, not accountability in the same way that Terry Lewis, the former police commissioner, experienced accountability. And so those would be, I guess, the key takeaways, right? These idea that structural reform of policing is possible. As I mentioned right at the, at the jump, policing is in itself a relatively new institution. And so I think people forget that. People assume that or you know, they, they think of policing as something that's always been there, when in reality, from a historical standpoint, Policing, the institution of policing is really just a, a teething toddler, right? In the span of history, the institution of policing is still going through its growing pains and therefore shouldn't be just seen and taken for granted. Just like any toddler, just like any person going through growing pains, any awkward teenager, that's what policing is. It's something that needs reform at times. It needs correction. It is an imperfect institution that can be better and we shouldn't take it for granted that it is what it is and that's it. So there's that point of it as well. So yeah, I would say transparency is important. Uh, the symbolism of holding people accountable, holding the powerful accountable is something we have to learn. And of course, this recognition that policing isn't just this monolith that is unchangeable, that's always been there and always will be. The fact of the matter historically is that it's not. It's not always been there. It's not always been in the form that it is today. And therefore, it can change. It can be made better. Thanks for that, Paul. I think that's a really strong point to end on. And I hope that listeners have really gotten a flavor for how Under a Bad Sun works with this history through these concepts that we've been talking about to really emphasize those points about transparency, accountability, and reform that you've made here in the conclusion. It's been a real joy for me to talk with you today. And I so much enjoyed reading the book and learning these stories about Queensland and thinking really seriously about these issues that continue to affect us. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us today on the show. Thanks, Kurt. I really appreciate talking to you about it. Paul Bleakley's Under a Bad Sun, Police, Politics and Corruption in Australia is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find him at Dr. Bleaks on Twitter, and you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, along with the MSU Press. Thanks to the team there for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.